0: The number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is healthcare. Tens of millions don't have insurance and those that do still don't get the coverage they need. I'm flashing back to April of 2023 in a previous podcast where I joined Dr. Ricardo Nuila in his home. He was gracious enough to invite me into his space so he can share his thoughts on how we can improve a system that's been broken since the nation's founding, what areas of American healthcare are in the worst shape, and his book, The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. Now available wherever you get your books. Hi, right, I'm Ed Sheeran. This is Bruno Mars. Hey,
1: it's Katy Perry. This is your man, Florida, with Freddie
0: Cruz. This is AJ Mitchell with Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz.
1: Yo, let's you go pick Mr. 305, and you already know what it is. My
0: name is Freddie, and it's time to cruise through HTX. Talk to me about growing up in Wichita.
1: Wichita, well, I grew up there until I was around in second grade, actually. We moved when I was in second grade. I don't remember much of it other than there was not a big community of Hispanics there, you know? It was just like this little enclave of people that uh, we saw every week, you know? We had great friends that were there and and ended up moving to Houston also. So it just seemed like it was... That was the trend at the time, like people leaving that part of the country and coming to Houston. It's easy
0: when you grow up with your with your clique, with your bubble, with your circle, and you think, yeah, well, you know, we're in Texas and what's the first thing you think of when you think of Texas? And, and that's true, but then it's also really not true when you look at, you zoom out and look at how diverse and how there yeah. are all these different cultures, but you quite literally grew up as someone that was not like the rest of everybody else right. and then on top of that you grew up in a family where there were not very very many people doing what you know your family was known right. for doing I mean, you got you come from a, a family of doctors
1: right exactly um yeah you don't realize that and and somehow even in my family it was hidden just cuz my my dad never liked to think that we were different than anybody, you know, and it, it took me many years to be like, well, people did might've perceived you as differently, you know, but yeah. doctor, I think he, my dad grew up very proud of being a doctor. I grew up with the idea that I'm in a family of doctors. I don't think that they ever put much pressure on me to say, you must be a doctor, but it was just this model mm-hmm. out there. And it just felt like that that's I was going to slip into that. And I mean, it required a lot of work and thought and dedication, but it was uh, one of those situations where I felt like, OK, this is my path and I need to become a, doc- a doctor. But I, once I hit college, I really struggled with that. And I've struggled with it kind of uh, for, for a decade after that.
0: It's interesting. You have the self-awareness to say that you struggled through it. So yeah. when you say you, would you say it was more academically like grades? Was it society culture wise? Like, oh my gosh, I've got this freedom. I'm hanging out with all these college kids and they're crazy. Or was it a mixture of the two or something not yeah. related?
1: It was a little bit of like all, all of the above and, and some other things. It was also that medicine started to look kind of not not like an appealing profession to me and 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 I kind of reckon with that in the book where it's just I I started to see my dad was laboring against insurance companies you know his the pride that he had started to sort of diminish during those years where I was like really applying but also I I fell in love with books I fell in love with writing and I got to a point where I desperately wanted to to write and and I and and I mean I just was it it became in my mind like if you don't do this, you've sold out. And you know, at that time, you know, Gen X is like all about selling, you know, like the, like, yeah, not selling out. And so, you know, like <laughs> I think reality bites was on at the time, you know, all these, all yeah. these kind of like, you know, <laughs> thoughts about like, you can't sell out, you can't sell out. And and to me, it became like, truly it became, if you go into medicine, you're selling out.
0: Oh man.
1: I know it was weird. And, and, uh, but, but the the alternative was that like once I, so I I became an English major because I did not like my biology major. And I was like, I'm just going to stay on the path to get into medical school. And, and I went into English major and I loved my classes. I loved, I, I mean, I pushed it. I went into writing classes. I, I took a class in script writing and dialogue. And by the end, by the time I had gone through all the hoops to get into medical school. I got into my dream school here in Houston, Baylor, because it was the cheapest school in the United States. It was a great school, but yeah. it's also cheap. Um, and I was like, man, I don't think that I can go to medical school because I'll sell out if I, I'm not going to be a writer if I go, into, <sighs> if I go into medicine. So I go to my uh, script writing professor and I'm like, I tell him, I think I'm going to leave my medical school and admission because I want to be a writer. I was totally expecting him to say like, great, go forth, go, go watch some Woody Allen movies and you'll find your way. And he was just (laughs) like, it's like, you'd be crazy not to go to medical school. Yeah, And I just was like, oh man, he just thinks I'm a bad writer. It's a chip on my shoulder. You know, he's like, no, you, you can go to graduate school in writing and learn technique, but where are you going to get your stories from? And that was what, I mean, I, it's not like that, that like set me for it, but it stuck with me, those Mm -hmm. words from then on for, and I had to really kind of come to, you know, it was an echo in my mind for the next three, five years, had a lot of twists and turns. I mean, I went to medical school, I took a year off, I went back, I left, I came back. I was always struggling with the idea of like writing versus medicine, I thought that they were so different, and that I would sell out if I went into medicine, and then I happened to come to Ben Taub Hospital, which is the teaching hospital of Baylor, and medicine was different, and I saw the stories there, I started to find those stories there, and I mean, I fell in love with the responsibility of medicine, I loved that people would give me their stories, and I, in return, would give them the best type of healthcare that I could give, you know, my effort, my attentiveness. And I just didn't ever want, I didn't want to leave that place. I felt like it was in reinforcing, giving me, you know, the ability to write too. I feel like I learned to be a writer also at Ben Top, So that's what set me off.
0: It seems like there's a lot of reciprocity when it comes to building the relation. You know, before we hit record, we're talking about people and building relationships yeah. and how you tell that to your students who you teach. Um, but it seems there's a lot of reciprocity when it comes to patients mm-hmm. telling you about their journey, their struggles with whatever they're they're going through, and then you absorbing it, and then you're able to take that information and kind of. Yeah. And then create a story. And then that you go up because I'm learning things. Uh, I learned things reading uh, this book through the stories that you shared with people who shared with you exactly what they're going through. Um, the story about Roxana yeah. and Steven and, and, and all these people and it, and and the writing is beautiful. Obvi- it's obvious you wanted to be a writer uh, because of the way it's written. And it's obvious you study the craft and, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, there's a, a lot of reciprocity that that goes through that and builds that trust uh, yeah. between patient and doctor.
1: You know, that's essential to me. You know, that the the writing is a manifestation of that trust and yeah. of that relationship. It's when I I just genuinely feel like I am the servant for the patients, you know? And I mean, cause they're coming, you know, I'm, I imagine that they're having a terrible day. They're sick. They don't know what's going on because it's such a complex system. And it's just like, it's be, if I can make them happy and content that day, I've done my job. And yeah. so that, tr- that's the foundation of that trust. And it's, it's just a, a, a very privileged position to be in cause I can just listen to their, to their problems, help solve their problems. And if I can communicate that back to them, then it becomes like a very, like that relationship is solidified, you know? And then there there comes times where I'm like, you know, I'm thinking at a different level in terms of like, well, you know, your story resonated with me maybe it would resonate with everybody because I I don't know if the American public knows this. You know, I don't know if people around and that's sort of the writer part of me comes out where it's just where where I want to depict that.
0: You've written short stories, you've won awards. So obviously you are steeped into this world. Uh, How much of your life in in medicine has impacted the writing and and vice versa?
1: A lot. I, I think that, it's hard to imagine myself as a writer without the medicine and vice versa. It's hard to imagine myself as a doctor without the writing right now. To me, it's become one thing now. Mm -hmm. And I genuinely feel when I am on the wards working with patients, I feel like I'm working on my writing. I'm attuned to the drama of their stories. I'm looking at details that it's worlds that I just don't know, and I'm looking, investigating that, and I'm situating those in my mind into like greater arcs and greater narratives about things. You know, they're they're like specks in like a big painting for me. But also, you know, it's the other way around. And when I'm writing, I feel like I'm working, uh, I'm improving how I'm a doctor. You know, because I'm focusing on my words. I'm focusing on the expression of those. Um, when you read and when you write, you are thinking about a reader and you are trying to hit notes with that person, the way that I want to hit notes with patients. When I, the way that you say something can just tinge the way that a patient in that vulnerable situation understands it. And so to me, it's, it's, it's taken a long time, but it's like they, they've come together. So, I mean, one of my inspirations is Anton Chekhov, who was a doctor, what I love about his work is that you don't see medicine in his work. You know, I mean, I, I feel, you know, jealous of that because I almost feel like I have to write about medicine. Yeah. So often I almost feel like it's like part of it is because it's like low hanging fruit. insofar so far like, that's what I'm seeing right there. And it is so dramatic and it's so much on people's mind. You know, everybody has some healthcare story, some story of sickness, we, we get into our fears in, through that through, through healthcare. So it's like, it's, it's goldmine for writers
0: and you write what you know
1: and you write what you know yeah. and you write what you know. And I, I, I believe that too, you know, but, but I love that Chekhov can just write about people and situations and it's not medical situations, you know? So I, I, I almost like, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, maybe the next step is like trying to do something <laughs> like that, you know,
0: or maybe, uh, or maybe fiction.
1: Yeah. No, I love you know? it. Fi- I started off in, in, with short fiction yeah. and I do want to, I still is like a very big goal to write a, a novel, you know, like some of the there's doctor authors who have done both, you know, right now I'm reading Abraham Verghese's work and he's um he, he's written these large novels, these epic novels, and you can see the medicine like right there with him. And it's, it's interesting it, and medicine gives you a lot of gifts for storytelling, you know? So
0: yeah, and I've got a buddy up in Oregon, Tyler Jones, who writes horror, oh. and he works in a cardio unit. Um, oh. Interesting, and, and yeah, and he's talked about uh, seeing stories and or seeing individuals who are on every end of the human spectrum. So you've got a little boy who's got a yeah. heart problem, then you've got a seventy-something-year-old boy, and we and we've talked on more than one occasion on my podcast. And um, and we've talked a lot about just the human condition and what makes a life and what makes a good life and what makes a what makes a hero, what makes a villain and and just the complexity of of just being a person and just being alive.
1: Yeah. You know, you said horror and uh, horror story in the unit. One of the. First, horror stories I would say is Anton Chekhov's Ward Number Six, where it's a doctor caring for a, a psychiatric unit in Russia in mm. like the late 1800s. And I oh, mean, geez. spoiler alert, he ends up being in the psychiatric unit because of the bureaucratic and Byzantine system that they have and everything. And <laughs> oh, but you, you do see like all of what you're talking about uh, um, with Tyler and everything, it's just these these glimpses of how human beings behave just not just as individuals but collectively how they can yeah. behave differently collectively and how it can like turn on ideas and it's really just um yeah check that uh, any you know everybody should check out that story in word number 6
0: absolutely and going back to going back to when you were an intern yeah and something you said that really resonated with me it's okay if you die and I'd like to know how those words affect you and the decisions you and your patients make together and then when you break out and they make their decisions with their families, so on and so forth.
1: Yeah. You know, I was a, an intern and I had a patient who, I mean, I'm saying this with all the utmost respect, but this is how I felt. He had been through the ringer, you know, he had just been, you know, he had, metastatic cancer that had affected his body so much that he was in and out of the hospital, in and out of the ICU. And he was tired. He was really just exhausted and he spoke Spanish and I was an intro, meaning like I had just graduated from medical school. And at that moment, you don't feel like, you know, anything, you know, you know, some, you know, more than you you think, you know, but you don't feel like, you know, much. And not only that, I had taken a year to try to write. So I was like, felt like I was very behind. Um, But, you know, I was also able to work as a Dr. write orders and everything. I was just very guarded. And, uh, but, but his story of this, just, I could hear it in the tone of his voice. I could see it in the chart. He was, he was exhausted and he was, and I, I sat with him and he told me about, you know, everything that he'd been through. And it just came out of my mouth. I was just like, you know, it's it's okay if you die. I, I, could, I felt this resistance, you know, I felt this resistance to him of just like, he was talking about his daughter, uh, about how like, how he knew he was a burden to that, to his daughter. His daughter was working, you know, like everybody, people are like trying to hang on, you know, and he knew he could recognize that, man, I am like, you know, my illness, which will not be cured is hanging over this family right now. And I could just, I could hear it in the tone of his voice and, and it just escaped my lips. And I just think about that because I, I told him it's okay if you die. And, and that generated a, a conversation about how he didn't want to have resuscitation. He didn't want to be resuscitated or intubated. if His heart stopped or if he stopped breathing, I filled out the chart and I left his bedside and lo and behold, 10 minutes later, I get a call from the nurse that he's died. And I, it is one of those mysteries of the universe of medicine that I still don't know how to reconcile. I don't know how to like wrap my head around that exactly is that, did he release? Did he just, did he just like, did those hearing that kind of like allow him to just say, I can just sort of, you know, allow my body to die? Was it coincidental? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I just know that we don't know everything, you know? We don't know everything in science. And I think a lot of doctors, if you're tuned into your patients, you'll find these moments and it stuck with me.
0: Yeah, that was a powerful story. And, you know, it goes back to the overall stereotype that we all just want to, we want to help. Yeah. And- that's why a lot of people get into medicine because they want to help. They want to make the world a better place. And mm-hmm. and here you have a man who's quite literally helpless. His name is Alvaro. He's in the book. And the book is the people's he- hospital. And the way you describe his condition and then leading up to that moment was just painful. But you know, it's it's um he wants he he feels that he's a burden. Yeah. Yeah, at the same time, you know he knows that his death is not going to be something easy to, right, to right. cope with. He's he's a father and a grandfather, yeah. but at the same time his daughter is going through hell trying to make sure yeah. that he's taken care of. So it's like you you're gonna help either way, but either way is going to be painful. Right.
1: Yeah. And it's complex. Yeah. The complexity is and and that's that's where where I I feel that there's no there's no right answers often. There's just choices a lot of times. And I feel like what this particular person had not sort of heard is, is that that viewpoint was that it's okay if you die, you know, it's, it's like, you don't have to necessarily hold on. That's how life goes. Life moves on, you know, and I'm not trying to say that disrespectfully. I just wanted to put that out there as one of those things that you could consider if it helps you alleviate your suffering.
0: Absolutely. And shifting because in the book, you you do write about these individuals and their their struggles and their journeys going through all these different conditions. You've got a, a transplant patient, you got another cancer patient who you write about and there's one in particular that really bothered me and that's the boy who was essentially dumped at a hospital because he was uninsured. He had a note attached to him and he died of meningitis. And so how, how frequent does this happen?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's so it happened much more frequently in the 1980s. And that's one of the reasons why we have the law now it's, it's become a right. It's, we have the the law mtala which is the emergency medical treatment and labor act that was enacted because there was a whole literature out in the medical journals about this patient dumping patient dumping was basically patients who were uninsured coming to hospitals where the hospitals decided to dump them onto the onto the public hospitals and when i say dump it means like they would just send them with a note or they would drive them themselves. Like, you know, it would just be like, there was all these, um, you know, nefarious ways by which the patients were sent to other places. And so Texas out of all places, I mean, I love my state, but I also recognize that it's a complex state. Just like, you know, it's like, it's like a human being, you know, it's like (laughs) complex. Right. Um, you know, Texas, uh, for its reputation of a lot of things, it took the first stand in saying, like, uh, passing anti-dumping laws. You can't dump patients in these critical moments because there was patients like this who he was in a life or death situation and he was uh, sent away in within the throes of that life and death situation. And he ended up dying, you know, and that was written about in in. One of the medical journals, and so they passed this law, and now it's there is a form of that patient dumping, but it's not as egregious as it was because there's regulations about that law,
0: and the fact that it's called patient dumping, yeah, it just yeah. sound, it's just, it's hum, inhumane, yeah, um, that people were just being treated like like animals, dumped like animals, and.
1: Yeah. You know, I think it's a manifestation of like the healthcare, the history of the healthcare system, which is that we just have not in this country forged the healthcare system that says we're going to provide this level of coverage for these situations for everybody. Now, you know, some people might argue, you know, Mtal is is, is saying that it's like, okay, you're in an emergency. We take care of you. It's true. Yeah. People have a right to get emergency treatment in this country uh, to stabilize emergencies, even if you're not a citizen, even if you're not a um, insured, but it's still, the nuances of that are that there's chronic care, there's there's different ways to access healthcare. And we just have not had in this country a reckoning with the idea that, you know what, everybody should have basic universal healthcare. Mm. And I think that that's why we have things like, dumping we uh, we 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 have manifestations of that problem as being dumping law and we have to pass anti-dumping laws cuz we just haven't said we're going to make a system. We everything that about is about healthcare is patchwork. It's just like it was moving like this and like it's not working and somebody's being affected so let's just try to adjust this, you know, just this tweak this and that but it's not really saying we need a system.
0: Yeah, and and this you're talking about was back in the eighties, but yeah. in I've in reading the book and then seeing one of your Instagram videos that this actually started around the time of the American revolution. Yeah. Then we tried to fix it. Civil war era. Then Teddy tried to fix it. Then FDR yeah. did some stuff and then LBJ did some stuff. So, I mean, this isn't like all of a sudden we just end up with a really crappy healthcare system. This is, Oh, this is an ongoing centuries debate. in the this making.
1: Is, this is an ongoing thorn in our side. Um, thorn that is like cuts to the core of who we are as Americans, right? This is from the Revolutionary War. We decided that there would be no cap on doctor's fees. And the reason that's important is, is that we've just basically let, allowed doctors to charge what they want for their fees. That's different than other countries. Okay. And what that has engendered is this fee for service that we have. This is the fundament of the American healthcare system, which is that, and and this is something that President Nixon in the seventies called the illogical incentive of the American healthcare system, which is that you can bill more for in finding more sickness. So we're basically paying to treat sickness rather than to make people healthy. Chris you know?
0: Chris Rock was right.
1: Chris Rock was right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and, and that's Mm. what, you know, and that's why our system is very different from other countries is because we incentivize that the treatment of illness, you know, if you, uh, do more, you can bill more as a doctor. And, but what's happened is also that in these debates that we've had in the 1900s, you know, there was like the 1910s, the thought, well, maybe we should get. Healthcare is becoming expensive. We should give it for everybody so that it's cheaper for everybody. Um, lobbies have really come and said, "and said, no, you don't want that. We don't want socialized healthcare." This can has been kicked down the road. We ended up having this pegging health insurance to work, you know, employment. This is how we experience health insurance for the most part that was not like a grand plan. That was in 1945. What that was, was that to combat inflation, you know, companies wanted to hire employees and, uh, but there was the problem of inflation. And so they couldn't offer the, uh, offer them higher wages because there was the government had said, nobody can offer higher wages because we're trying to combat inflation. So they, but they allowed people to, they allowed companies to offer health insurance plans. Yeah, And so th- that that was another manifestation of that patchwork where it's like, well, we can't figure out healthcare. you know, like health is like a real hot potato politically. And there's a lot of interests who really want to keep it as it is because it's generating a lot of money. So it's just like, let's just put it on the employers. But what we found today is, is that it's so expensive, you know, I mean, employers don't want to pay for as much. So they cut the plans. People are left paying a lot out of pocket. It's just it's just obscene amounts of money now.
0: Yeah, and it's um, you're obviously way more knowledgeable at this stuff than I am. Um, I don't know what to think, mm-hmm. and I read the the and okay. So in the book, you talk about you and your father and your relationship, yeah. and and you have different and without because when you talk about policy you're always, it's always going to get political and this isn't a political um, conversation. All that to say is that I agree with both of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you make, you make a solid case for how you see things and I'm like, hell yes, that. And then you talk about your father and I'm like, hell yes, that. Yeah. (laughs) And so um, is, is it, does the system need to be, Metaphorically speaking, obviously, blown up, and then we just start all over, like you know, yeah. reconstruction with the Civil War. You just start all over, uh, blown up, or is there a sort of managed collapse uh, that we could do to where we, you know, start to dismantle the machine to a certain extent and then we just build it back up the way we can, or are we just far too divided? There are too many interests, there's too much yeah.
1: whatever. That's a so that's one of the reasons why I wrote. In a in an op ed piece recently, that I think we need to have a national referendum on this topic, where everybody votes, yay or nay on a basic healthcare for all system. The reason is because my that's my concern is that is is that this gets so tinged at the moment. Uh, you know there's there's a lot of agreement that healthcare is broken. In fact, if you there's been a survey of Texans, seven out of 10 Texans believe that the federal government has or should provide universal basic health care for for people. That's so the majority of people of Americans across the political spectrum think that we need to do something about health care. Yeah. More than half of 60 percent of Americans almost grade the American health care as a total failure. So everybody is aware of this. The problem is, is that our democratic system makes it so that if a candidate brings it up, it's just politicized and we cannot, it's, it's hard for one side to stomach another candidate bringing up a proposal. So, you know, that's why I'm, uh, that's why when one of my thoughts is why don't we just, we can have a non-binding referendum. We've never had a a national referendum, but I believe that this is one of the most important topics that we have faced as a nation and and will continue to face because of the amount of money we're spending on it and what it's doing to us, you know, health-wise. But if we had a national referendum where people are like it's not a political issue, just it, it's just yay or nay, you know, and then mm-hmm. that would send a message to Congress to say build us a healthcare system. And then, you know, yeah, it's going to take a lot of negotiation, but The politics of it, there's good ideas on both sides. I mean, I think the way I saw this book when I was writing it was like that I did not I did not write this book to preach to the choir. In fact, this book started off as like, I'm writing patient stories Yeah, and I had to really kind of like come and extract ideas from the patient stories kind of to make it sense. Not, I didn't start off with an idea and say, okay, now let's look at like people and like, let me, let me, let me, um, you know, prove my idea with people. No, there was the, it was the opposite. And so I think that step forward is to acknowledge the ideas on both sides. And to, for me, it's it's that on one political side is the idea that we have to cut costs. And I totally agree with that. Money is the problem in healthcare in America. And I think that that's a legitimate, and, and, a, and we can, you know, we need to take that seriously. On the other side, I think politically is, is that everybody should get healthcare, you know? And I mm-hmm. think that that's also true. What I think is so interesting where I found myself was that I worked in Houston, Texas at a public healthcare system that achieved both. And I was just like, wow. Okay. This is, this is the reason why I want to write this book is to show people that we can accomplish those two major, major things if we think about healthcare differently than we are thinking about it right now.
0: Yes. And to your point Ben Tobb has a, a the, the reputation and you write about it in the book. Yeah. And it's almost like, it's almost like you you wrote something that everybody says yeah. is their first opinion. It's where I'd want to go if I got shot. Yeah, exactly. That's that, I mean.
1: People in Houston, we all know that, right. It's yeah. like where I'd go, you know, and like, it's what's interesting is, is that like, I feel like in, when I was in high school here in like the nineties and stuff like that, it really was like, that's where I'd get, you know, if I got shot, but it was like, literally like, I'm not the type of person who probably gets shot. Now people have recognized the trauma capacities of this hospital. And
0: I saw that firsthand, man, my grandmother, God rest her soul. She in her early seventies was hit by a truck. Oh my gosh. And she was taken to Ben Taub and she survived a year later. It was as if nothing happened. And she lived more than 10 years afterward.
1: Amazing. I mean, That's to that kind of help, treatment. That's the type of benefit to everybody in the community that a hospital like that gives, you know? One of the reasons I wanted to write this book, I felt compelled to write this book, was to dispel that notion that this is a public hospital for people who can't, homeless, can't afford, I mean- For those people. For those people. It's for all of us because- You know, it, as society becomes more, compl- as, as people are going faster down the highways and everything like that, we're going to be more subject to those risks, you yeah. know? And we need to have, you know, Bentop is only, is one of two level one trauma centers in Houston. Now, the recommendation is, is that you have a level one trauma center for every million people in the metropolitan area. Okay. So we, we, it's doing the work of three or four because we have like six, seven million, pe- seven around million people in the yeah. metropolitan area. And, and they happen to be, those two level ones happen to be right across the street from each other. Right. So I think that um, just on the basis of like what it can offer all of us, there are, you know, the trauma burn units. Those are things that all of us are going to, you know, that's, That's a, that's a safety net for all of us because we might get into accidents. We, we, you know, we might get errantly shot even, you know, so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's something, Um, something you wrote about in the book. And I love this uh, analogy. It's that the hospital is a body and the departments are the organs. And so I'd like to know which, which metaphorical organ is in the best health Mm. and which, Oregon is in the worst health as a result of the current state of healthcare in America.
1: Wow, that's a good. I think that the in at Ben at least the muscles is what I describe as like the wards I believe, which is that they're just like you're doing the work of like churning things out in movement and you know at I feel like that the wards are you know unfortunately the the hospital is. so so much at the whim of unemployment in this city, you know? So it's like, remember we've, in, a, in America, we've pegged health insurance to employment. So if, if like people get laid off, we see a lot more patients in our hospital because they were getting treatment, you know, a subset of people are getting treatment for, you know, cancers or for di- their diabetes. And all of a sudden their rug has been pulled out from underneath them. So they end up, in the hospital, they're in the emergency room. Our emergency room is, is, is almost always packed. Now we have a good way of triaging people. And uh, I think that, you know, I know I've, I've, I noted in the book, the wait lists, uh, the wait times are, are, are almost legendary, but I think that that's a more of a sign of, our society, like I said, it's doing the work of like a trauma of like three or four trauma centers rather than like the operations in the hospital. But I think that if you look at the statistics, people, when they get up to the floors, they actually really like their experience up there. So I think that that's where, like, that's the organ, the muscle, the muscles, which are moving, you know, people, churning people through getting, you know, getting movement. I think that's what's performing the best, you know?
0: And what about the worst? (laughs) <laughs> oh,
1: gosh. Well, I think that, you know, this is tough because it's just also a, um, I, th- I think that the, it's hard to say this, but I think emerg- emergencies, like I said, I think emergency room is doing the best that it can do, but we have to recognize that like, Chris Rock is right again, you know, there's mm-hmm. our emergency rooms are also filled with people who get paper cuts, you know, and and like that right that I told you about the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. One of the flip sides of that is, is that people go for to the emergency rooms when maybe they don't have to, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's so that's, again, another sort of societal thing that we need to deal with. We would rather go to emergency rooms than to primary care doctors. And I feel like that that's something that w- we need to reconcile in our, in this country. What if we had a system where you could just say, Hey, I have a problem. I'm going to go to this clinic down the street. And, you know, I, I'm sure that I'm going to be seen at that moment. I don't have to wait three months ahead of time. You know, I don't have to worry about my insurance. I can just, you know, that's how it is in a lot of, uh, in, in other countries, you mm-hmm. know, and, that's one of the reasons why I say emergencies because it's like all of us are in that together.
0: Yeah, and there's something in in the book algorithmania. Yeah, yeah, and so it's it's people sending doctors, medical professionals, sending others with paper cuts or whatever. Yeah, they don't need to go to a place like Ben. No, that's Top.
1: true. That's true. That that does happen in medicine, and that's where it algorithmia to me is. I define it as adherence to an algorithm even when it just doesn't make any sense right when when it means that you haven't listened to the patient or to the person and uh it's 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 a part of medicine it can be a part of medicine that in just trying to stick to that algorithm and just being like if if this do this if okay checkbox boom send them to this other place that we just lose sight of the whole forest you know for the trees you know we're just yeah. we just have missed the chief complaint, we've missed the problem, you know? And uh, I think that that is one of the reasons why people do get referred. I mean, yeah, sometimes I will come across patients in the emergency room and I'm like, why did you come here? You know, like you just, and they were like, I called a number and they sent me here and I'm like, okay, you know, yeah, that's a tough situation. I can't. I can't fault anybody for calling a no- you know calling yeah. a number and then. T- so we have to reckon with that, and I mean, some of that is liability uh, concerns, but some of that is just like again that algorithm mania of just being like it's an easy fix just to like send somebody to like the emergency room rather than to like kind of think through that problem.
0: What are your thoughts on AI and medicine?
1: I think that it probably does have a role in certain parts of medicine. Like I can see the distinguishing, uh, you know, for instance, in pathology or in radiology where it's about like distinguishing um, visually like some images, you know, I could see how AI could be probably helpful for some of that. But I do fear like, you know- (laughs) I read that Chad, that what was it? The Chad GPT, the 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 New York Times one where where he was like that the the AI uh, was telling the New York Times reporter that he loved. You know, it just became like kind of like a creepy kind of like interaction.
0: Oh, that he wants to rule the world or yeah, something. I yeah, saw yeah. a
1: headline. Yeah, it was, like it that. was I mean, it, people should read that because it was really interesting. But I fear that AI will in trying to put a human touch on medicine, it's going to kind of like backfire. And mm. really, I mean, I think that what people want is just the trust that somebody is trying to do a really good job for them. Now, I think that we need to have standards, obviously. You, yeah. No matter how good, some how, how, how kind somebody is at the bedside, they have to be able to, diagnose well, treat well and everything. So I'm not trying to diminish that, but I I think that there is something about a human being listening, understanding and forging ahead with a plan that resonates with people. Yeah. And, and, and I think that AI can make that less of a priority and I'm worried about that.
0: Yeah, and it goes back to relationships. Yeah. Yeah. always goes Definitely. back to and AI will well depending on who you listen to they can replace relationships no. but I don't think I mean if AI and not if AI was invented by a human yeah. and that human had and has uh, relationships and right. so that's something that it'll never be able to take away from from you from me from society from anybody in the anybody on the planet. And
1: the other thing is is that AI was invented by a human being who programmed it. And that human being has his or her own, you know, biases when they make that. That's one of the things that I, yeah. the, that like in, that I discovered in my research is that, you know, there have been moments where in, in medicine where people had great intentions on how to design programs to help people get healthcare but in the manif- in the unrolling of those programs rolling out of those programs we discovered huge biases you know and and so that's why you know i think that if we yield if we yield ourselves to ai decision making we're going to see a lot of those biases come out more often
0: it's going to be a big learning curve for us to yeah. to figure out exactly what the right recipe is to you know if 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 Human life and preservation of our of our humanity is the the the, the dinner the the mm-hmm. grand feast. Then humans are one ingredient, and then AI is the other ingredient. So now we have to figure out which one is what's the right amount.
1: Right, I agree with that. Know? I think I think it is it it, it it's. I think it'd be naive to say we sh- we should just get rid of AI, AI cuz that's just like where it you know oh, our
0: enemy is going to get it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we need we need to just harness yeah. it and and recognize it as a tool yeah. and situ and, and you know limit how that tool is utilized in essential human moments. You know, human moments should still be human moments, yeah. you know, but it should if if that human being wants to have the tool to help that moment, that's fine, you know? But it's like, it shouldn't replace those moments. Y'all
0: get the book, The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine by Dr. Ricardo Nwila. And I'd like to wrap up the interview with something from the book. People are scared to help an illegal because they think it's illegal to help an illegal. And that was another quote that just really, really, struck a chord with me.
1: Yeah, that was, that was uh, said to me by uh, a very good person who was trying to help one of the subjects or people in the book. Um, You could, you could hear in in her words, right? The conflict, right? She's just like, and, you know, Ben Taub serves everybody. And we see people who are undocumented and I come across their stories and I just feel very privileged and I feel like I'm lucky to be a doctor and my, the type of practice that I w- want to conduct is that it, like whoever comes in the door, I listen to them and I try to help them out. And I think that that's the model that we should have for American healthcare, Doctor? Thank you for inviting me to your home to talk to you. It's great to have you here. I loved seeing this equipment. This is great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of fun. Y'all grab the book again, The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. Thank you so much. Thanks, Freddie. Hey, it's me. I'm back with a quick little nudge. If you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did putting it together for you, then please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to the newsletter at cruisethroughhtx.com and share with your family and friends. Thank you.